Tell me about being a cox. You've always talked about it in passing. But what got me is you saying you had to get up at 5am to go running. And I'm not sure you need to do that. That's kind of the one thing that you really do need to do. You could wake up at 4.30am and walk instead. But I needed literally every minute of sleep I could get. So 5am it was. I didn't go to a fancy school. So this is something that happened only at university because I did go to a fancy university. And the university had a rowing club. And I, being a naive fresher, got sucked into it. Because they were like, oh, you've got exactly the right build to be a cox. You should be a cox. And so in Fresher's Week, I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. I'll give it a go. So they approached you rather than you approached them? Yeah, at the Fresher's Fair, I was wandering about. And they just like called me. I was walking past like, oh, be a cox. So I thought, I'll give it a go. I'll do it once or twice. And then I then did it for like three years and was captain of coxes in fact <laughs> not for the university for the college what, what makes a good cox weigh 55 kilograms or less i didn't used to weigh very much i still don't weigh that much possibly this is when i developed weird obsessions about how much i weigh <laughs> if you weigh less than 55 kilograms you actually have to carry weights to make your weight up to 55 kilograms this doesn't make much of a difference at the level we were rowing at, really, to be honest. But it probably does make a small difference. Anyway, what does a cox do? The cox is the person who sits at the end of the boat and steers the boat. And also shouts at all the people in the boat, Row faster, you idiots! We're losing! Row faster! Is that what you really shouted? That's not what you really shout. What do you really shout? You really shout a lot of stuff that basically means that, but you try not to make it so obvious. There's a lot of like theatrics to it and there's a lot of like the rhythm of your voice and a lot of stuff involved in the steering. Like at the start of the academic year, whenever there were new coxes, there was always a point in the river that was actually relatively hard to steer through. And you would get all the new coxes having a massive pile up at this like bend in the river and all the experienced coxes would be like shooting around at full speed. You have to steer like three boat lengths in advance and the boat is like 20 meters long. So you have to, you have to steer a lot in advance because the rudder is minuscule. Or if you haven't really planned far enough ahead, you can kind of wing it just by getting the people to row harder on one side. So you'd be like more pressure bow side. And then they'll just row harder <laughs> and then they'll just make up for your mistakes. <laughs> the, the most theatrical bit is like the start because you have to like line up at the starting line. And then like a cannon will go off and you've got to do this like pre-rehearsed startup routine. You'd be like, draw, punch, draw, this whole like chant and all the people have to like wind up and you've got a target rate at which you have to row at. So you'll be working with the stroke who is the rower who's at the, depending on which way, the the person who's sitting in front of you as the cox, you're kind of at the back of the boat and between you and the stroke, you have to work out how fast you should be rowing and tell them your rate is two strokes per minute over or two strokes per minute under or something. And you have to, you'll have a target rate at which you're trying to row at and you will try and get them to that rate and they will subtly make adjustments. And obviously everyone has to row together. So 
there's a lot of training that you have to go to to try and get your crew working as one unit and hence all the land training and all the running as well. So you would do training before lectures at least two or three times a week, sometimes every day. And hence the need to meet up with them at five in the morning and then run down to the river because you've got to run with them because, you know, they can't row the boat without you being in it. And also just for team spirit reasons, whenever they did land training, like fitness training, like aerobic training, you would do it with them as well. You wouldn't do the weights because that might make you too heavy. (laughs) So, yeah, I did this for years. And in my last year of university, I didn't do it. I officially made it somebody else's problem and had a great time. It was amazing. It's like, oh, I can sleep in until <laughs> whatever time I like. Was there a disproportionately high number of Chinese coxes? There weren't that many. Actually, I was going to say there weren't that many Chinese people. Actually, there were loads of Chinese people. Just none as gullible as you. None as gullible as me. Yeah, the rest of them were all smarter than that. I think the rest of them were like, get up at 5 a.m. GTFO. I don't remember seeing that many other Chinese coxes. And developed your, your doucheness yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was still nice guy Mike. I was like, someone asked me for a favour. Okay. I hadn't learned to say no. To this day, I still have a problem with that. You know, I can say no once. I can't manage to say no twice. It's like, Mike, let me 10 grand. What? Don't be ridiculous. Come on, please. Oh, all right. What's your bank details? People will try that. <laughs> I'm just trying to get more listener interaction. <laughs> Can I ask you about something else? Yes. You've made me read about 2552. The 5-2 diet. Alternate day fasting. Or alternate day fasting light, which is 5-2. Which is not quite alternate. So what do you do? You just don't eat two days a week. Any two days. Any two. Well, you probably shouldn't pick two consecutive days, but... Yes, in the 5-2 diet, you pick two days and you just eat fewer than 600 calories on those days. This works for you? I have been doing this to try and get my belly back under control. I think it's worked. I mean, I'm back under 60 kilograms again. I'm not quite down to my university coxing weight. But that was underweight. But that was underweight. (laughs) Yeah, probably. But you were saying you had some ill effects yesterday? Some ill effects yesterday? Are you talking about my like bathroom breaks or lack thereof? <laughs> yes. Yeah, your body kind of gets used to it. And then on the days where you don't eat anything, you just don't poop either. Your body's just like, no, I need these nutrients. I need to hold on to them as long as possible. Got to make them really dry. <laughs> that was quite unnecessary too. No one needs to hear that. Thought we were going there. But yes, alternate day fasting. Yesterday, my entire calorie intake consisted of one cup of tea and one bowl of miso soup. No melon cereal. No melon cereal. This morning, I woke up and I was like, so tired. Must eat melon cereal. That's a lot less than the 500, 600 calories. This all started from watching, I think it was Horizon, which is a BBC science documentary. That just covers interesting topics. So I think they covered the topic of fasting as a means for life extension. Studies have been done showing that significant calorie restriction actually causes things to live longer. 
And some people have basically tried to do this and just live their lives eating optimally nutritious but calorie low diets. So making sure you get all of the required vitamins and minerals, but literally having slightly too few calories than you would normally want to eat. Is this the one where they're they're just eating the apple skins? Yeah, that's right. They literally get a big bag of apples. They peel the apples, they eat the skins, and they throw away the actual apples because the skins are optimally nutritious while being low calorie. They're just full of fiber and like vitamins. On the other hand, most people find this no way to live your life. It's like, wow, I might live longer, but it's going to be hell. What's the point? So there were some other studies done showing that if you actually eat every other day, it has pretty much the same effect. So on the not eating days, you eat fewer than 600 calories. And on the eating days, you just get a cheeseburger and buffalo wings and a slice of cake and wash it down with a milkshake. And apparently this is actually totally fine. I actually did this for a year. I literally did alternate day. So on the non-eating days, I would have just some salmon sashimi and black coffee. And on the eating days, I would be getting like a triple cheeseburger and slice of cake and like a ham and cheese croissant in the morning. And it was actually fine, but it was really inconvenient because people would be like, going, oh, do you want to go out for dinner? It's like, oh, sorry, it's a non-eating day. You know, it was, it was more the social impact of doing it that was really awkward. And so I eventually kind of just stopped because it was too much of a faff. But I did do it for like a year. Could you just not change your fasting day? Well, I don't know. I don't know how much. It was just like caused chaos because your body kind of gets used to one rhythm and then if you start changing it. I don't know. It was an interesting experiment. But I mean, recently I've just been haphazardly and completely randomly just not eating certain days. So, I mean, on the same Horizon show where they did the alternate day fasting and also 5-2 as a slightly easier way of managing it. They also covered the idea of just literally eating fewer than 50 calories and doing that once a month. And apparently that has a similar effect too. So that's what I was doing yesterday. Because the miso soup is 33 calories and <laughs> a cup of tea is also not very many. And, you- and you know, I haven't had any shirts rupture since. So I think it's working. My stomach has retreated back to its pre-buffet breakfast every day dimensions. What have you done with those shirts? What have you done with those shirts? Have you burned them? <laughs> Actually, the other thing is that I kind of changed job and so now I don't have to go in in business attire anymore either. So I've just been going in in t-shirts. <laughs> so that's also helped. So I'm pretty sure I fit into those shirts again, but I haven't actually tried it. <laughs> I've just been swanking in in a t-shirt and a cardigan for Hoodie? like... No, well, it's too hot for a hoodie. In fact, to be honest, it's too hot for the cardigan, but it's really cold in the office. They've got their AC cranked up to 11. That's the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. That's not the right... They're killing the planet, man. They're killing the planet. But there's nothing worse than having, like, a a sweaty groin in the office, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) First, it's toilet questions. Now it's a sweaty groin. Where are you going, Ting? What's going on? (laughs) You don't know. Haven't been out all weekend. Got cabin fever. He's got cabin fever. Oh dear. Welcome to Lost Levels Club. Welcome to Lost Levels Club. I have with me Sir Michael. Hello. And myself. Tingathy. We're a book club for games. And today we are. Woo! Woo! 
today's book club game is Firewatch. Which was your choice. Yeah, it feels like it feels like you're pointing a finger at me at the same time. Verbally, you're pointing a finger at me. <laughs> it's like it was your choice, man. Are you happy with your choice? Yes. Did you enjoy Firewatch? Yes. Yeah, I enjoyed Firewatch too. I'm surprised. You're surprised. Do you think I was going to be like another bullshit walking simulator? How many more of these are there? I think I've played more walking simulators than you. I thought you expected more, but that's the whole point of Firewatch. We, we'll talk about that later. Firewatch is a walking simulator, another walking simulator, given that we've also just played What Remains of Edith Finch, though it is a bit different. So on the similarity side, what makes it a walking simulator? There's no failure condition. You can't lose the game. It's really you exploring an environment and having a story told to you. Though it is a little bit different, as you said last time, in What Remains of Edith Finch and also in Gone Home, which is another one I suggested you might want to play, you are kind of discovering things after the fact. You're exploring an abandoned house and learning the story of that house. In Firewatch, you are experiencing it directly. It's not like archaeology. Events occur and you are there as those events occur. For the most part, anyway. I guess the other mechanical difference, you've got the radio. So given that it's happening right now, you can have an active conversation with Delilah, this character on the other side of a radio link with you. And a lot of the game is really choosing conversation options with Delilah and developing a relationship with her. But anyway, if we take a step back and go a bit meta for a moment, Firewatch was developed by a company called Campo Santo, and Campo Santo were recently acquired by Valve. Do you have any... <laughs> uh, Campo Santo, ex-Telltale developers, so they spun out of Telltale after The Walking Dead Season 1. Oh, is that true? I didn't, I didn't realise that. There's a lot of talk about the demise of Telltale Games, you know, how they tried to spin up too quickly and how key creative talent has left. I was more looking at how Campo Santo phrased their acquisition. So, you know, in a statement about their acquisition, Campo Santo said, in Valve, we found a group of folks who, to their core, feel the same way about the work that they do. In us, they found a group with unique experience and valuable, diverse perspectives. It quickly became an obvious match. How do you feel about that? Does this mean that Half-Life 3 will be a walking simulator? No, I'm kidding. There's never going to be a Half-Life 3, is there? But what on earth is Valve making? I hope that them acquiring Campo Santo means that they're actually going to make something, rather than just give us more, I was going to say more Steam sales. I mean, I guess I can't really complain about Steam sales. But you, I think you're onto something when you say VR walking simulators. Yeah, Valve has previously stated that they're trying to make three really full VR games. And I don't know, is VR and walking simulator a good match? Walking in VR is generally a recipe for feeling really sick. The idea of playing Firewatch in VR sounds amazing. 
Does it, though? I don't think if we had played Firewatch in VR, it would have added that much to the experience. How do you take a blow to the head in VR? Yeah, exactly. You know, you're going to take the blow to your head. Your perspective is going to shift without you moving your head, and you're just going to feel violently sick. Well, that would have the desired effect. <laughs> you're right. I suppose that's very immersive. Let's start with how you played the game, and then I can have I can I can talk I can talk a little bit, and then you can just go for it. You played on PS4, yes. How was that? Loading times are long. Long, yes. So at least thirty seconds. I'm trying to think if the loading times were that bad on PC. They could they couldn't have been if you didn't notice. They they were noticeable, like the loading times when you changed day were significant, but probably significantly less than 30 seconds. Was the vibration? I don't know. I played on remote play again. Oh, okay. I played with mouse and keyboard this time. Well, I'll go into that in a moment. <laughs> How was your experience on PC? Well, let me tell you. It was incredible. <laughs> it was incredibly frustrating. No, I, I was really surprised that, number one, there was no borderless full screen option so i thought oh what a pain but then it turns out that the full screen option really is borderless full screen because there were lots of people with the opposite whinge in their forums about how the full screen option isn't true full screen and it's messing with their performance whatever i mean i was actually quite happy with borderless full screen but the problem is they made the decision that when the game loses focus it auto minimizes why would you do this it's really annoying it's more of a problem because I'm obviously playing it as the book club game. So I'm actually taking notes as I'm playing it. And I like to be able to alt-tab to write in a Google Doc as I'm playing, you know, like particular observations or things that I want to make sure we talk about. And every time I did this, it would just minimize the game. And I would just be like, why do you do this? So I actually ended up playing the game windowed just to stop it from doing this annoying behavior. And then... I originally wanted to play with controller because I thought it would be more immersive. But actually, the controls just kind of felt wrong on the controller. I couldn't say exactly what it was. I think like the sensitivities just kind of felt off. Like I just couldn't turn fast enough or I couldn't look around fast enough. It just, it just felt really odd. And usually you can tweak the sensitivities, but there didn't seem to be any obvious way to do that in the in-game menus. So... I switched to mouse and keyboard, which actually did have sensitivity options. And then the game kind of felt right, but the keyboard bindings were really weird. <laughs> so convention for PC games is that run will be shift. Or caps lock. Or caps lock, fine, yeah. I mean, caps lock is a kind of natural extension because that kind of does the same thing as shift when you're day-to-day -day typing. But in this game, they made shift 
bring up the radio and they made R run, which just seemed really weird to me. So I immediately wanted to swap those and discovered that I couldn't swap them. So I tried to make radio R, you know, and the game was like, you can't do that. R is already bound to run. And I was like, oh, please just swap them. I had to actually intermediately go and change one of them to like V or something. And then one final whinge. So this game is about two years old. Surprisingly, it has major performance issues on PC. So I'm running this on quite a beefy PC, but when I would look at a cash box or an interactable item, it would actually drop to under 20 FPS, which is crazy. So just looking at the cash box was enough to drop my FPS to 20 or below 20, like somewhere between 10 and 20. In Campo Santo's defense, this might be a weird Windows 10 update bug. But I actually had to switch to a beta branch. So there's an opt-in beta you could switch to. And that fixed the problem. But it's really weird that for a two-year-old game, I actually had to run on a beta branch to uh, get acceptable performance. I guess they're so small, so they're not actively patching the game. I don't know. I mean, to their credit, they did make this beta branch that fixed this problem. So it's just kind of surprising that it has the problem in the first place. Like, I don't really understand. I don't really understand what it can be doing that causes this. But I don't know. It's a mystery. I mean, it's based on Unity. But for it to have that impact on FPS, it suggests it's making some very kind of expensive system call. Anyway, irrelevant. Whining over. None of this is actually relevant to the game. <laughs> I just wanted to get it off my chest. Let's get to the interesting bit, the game itself. Yes. So it starts off with... Okay, I <laughs> I think it was really funny that you said last time you want to play this game because... It's happening in the moment. And I joked that it's going to open up with 10 years ago. And actually it pretty much does. It opens up with Boulder, Colorado, 1975. So I was like, oh, wait, is this game all happening after the fact? But not really. It's actually a very clever setup section for the game. So interleaved with you in inverted commas, the present day, gathering your stuff and driving out to the Firewatch is a choose-your-own-adventure game. And you are deciding and also learning at the same time the backstory for Henry, who is the character you're controlling. So what it is, it's a condensed love story between Henry and Julia, who ultimately becomes his wife. But unfortunately, she has young onset dementia at the age of 41. So in 1975, they meet in a bar and you can randomly chat her up by saying she looks pretty or you can ask her what her major is, but it turns out she's actually a professor. Yada, yada, yada. She develops early onset dementia. You have the choice of putting her in a home or keeping her at home. And trying to look after her yourself. Which did you do? I put her in the home. <laughs> and it said her family agrees with your decision. I'm really not sure they really would agree with your decision, to be honest. It seems a bit heartless. I'm not sure why I picked that. What are the consequences of putting her in the home? There's no consequences. It just it mentions that you go to visit her every day, and then every other day, and then once a week. Okay. So 
it's kind of sad and poignant. But, it, you know, it's difficult because she doesn't recognize you. You know, some days she recognizes you and other times she really doesn't. Like, you're a stranger to her. And her sister moves over from Australia to be closer to her. And the sister, again, also is supportive of you putting her in the home because it's, you know, it's difficult. And then you chose to keep her at home? Yes. And how did that go? Oh, it's not good. Yeah. I actually know this because I actually played through the game twice. Once as a blind playthrough and the second time with the developer commentary on. And in my second playthrough, I chose some different options. In particular, keeping her at home at all costs. So, what happens to you? I lock her in the room and I leave. Yeah, you just go out drinking. Yes. You just look out, you just look forward to your nights out drinking and then you eventually get arrested for drunk driving. So if you put her in a home, at what stage does she move? I actually had to double check this. So if you keep her at home, her family comes to visit and sees that your house is a train wreck and they say, we're taking her home. They never explicitly say when the family decides to take her home, if you put her in the home. So arguably that's a very minor plot hole. But by the time the actual game occurs, she is back in Australia with her family. But I did not notice any explicit reference in the story to that happening. And then the other important choice, of course, which dog did you pick? The beagle. The beagle. The beagle is the only correct choice. Yes, you can choose between a beagle called Bucket or a German Shepherd, I think, called Mayhem. I'm a big fan of beagles. And by association, I am too. (laughs) Now. I do think when you get mugged and Bucket gets kicked, I was like, no, they kicked the Bucket. (laughs) You didn't think, damn, I got the wrong dog. (laughs) I got the wrong dog. Well... Actually, if you pick Mayhem, Mayhem just runs away. So either way, your dog is no help. I got the more loyal dog, at least. Yeah, that's right. You know, Bucket tries to defend you and then they kick the Bucket. So you have to just... Well, what did you do? Do you scare him off or do you just pound his face in? Scare him off. Oh, I pounded his face in. (laughs) That's the times when you cross Bucket. So, I mean, this first section of the game I thought was really powerful. In the director's commentary, they actually mentioned that the game didn't originally start this way. It actually was more of a cold open before, with you just arriving at the tower. But the problem with that was, as you were having the conversations with Delilah, you as the player were learning about Henry at the same time Delilah was learning about Henry. And you wouldn't feel as embodied as Henry, because, you know, it was just Henry's character. It wasn't you. So they then hit upon this idea of the choose-your-own-adventure and then interleaving it with the startup. So you get a bit more backstory and then you also feel that you are Henry and you know Henry's story. It makes perfect sense. The choose-your-own-adventure, you really, you can really associate with it. The The music also just works really, really well. It's just... You know, as you arrive at the tower and then the music gets to this like really poignant part. Everything just comes together so well to to make you feel like you are this character. You've had this really painful situation and you've decided to escape to solitude. To take this 
lonely job in the wilderness where you can try and, I don't know, figure out your life. Is there any walking around prior to day one? Or is day one, day one? You are in control of the game during the prologue. In your drive to the park and the hike to the tower, you do actually have control of Henry as he does that. So I think it was at this stage when April made the comment then, as I was hiking up to the tower. So April, your wife, not an avid gamer, but trying, yeah, casual gamer. Casual gamer. Would that make her the target demographic for a walking simulator? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> well, that's a good thing given her comment. What did she say? It looks like a boring game for boring people. I love this comment. I thought it was hilarious. What's the point of this boring game? And who wants this kind of escapism? I can totally imagine April saying this. It's true, though. You, you've gone from your own life, your own not-so-miserable life. You're, you're taking the role of this. You're taking on, taking on Henry's pain. Better to experience this pain vicariously than have it happen to you. <laughs> What's your answer to this question, then? What, who plays walking simulators? Why watch sad films? It's just on the spectrum of human emotion. I think most games, if you had to place them emotionally, are power fantasies. And in the same way that I don't think it's a good idea to only watch Michael Bay-style action films, I don't think it's a good idea to only play power fantasy computer games. It's good to have a bit of variety. Every now and then you should play a boring game for boring people. <laughs> so yeah, you know, get access to some other parts of the emotional spectrum in your, in your gaming diet. It's a complicated hobby, you know, it doesn't have to just be about blowing things up. Are those fucking fireworks? Good God, language, lady. I didn't realise you were so sensitive to language. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So you didn't notice this? No. But in this game, they are really foul-mouthed. At least in parts of this game, there's just constant swearing. So on day one, you've just woken up, you're talking to Delilah on the radio. It's one of your first conversations with her. It's not maybe the first, but it's certainly a very early conversation with her. And... She's just like chatting to you and then she's like, fuck. And you're like, huh? And she's like, oh, never mind. And fuck, what the fuck? Fuck, 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 fuck. And it's because someone's setting off fireworks in the park. But yeah, she just suddenly becomes this like swear machine. <laughs> I found it quite surprising. I think Henry does it from time to time as well. It's a grown up game for grown up people. That's fine. No other particular comments. Not yet, no. So, I mean, we should probably mention a little bit about the setting. So, the year is 1989. 
you are a firewatch, which is a job that I'm pretty sure doesn't exist anymore. I assume this is now done by satellites and AI monitoring or something. But back in the Dark Ages, people used to have to sit in high towers spread throughout the park and if they saw a fire they had to report it so you and delilah can both see someone setting fireworks off in the park which is a big no-no because fireworks can start fires and you have to then go and find these people and tell them to stop so you know that they are down by the lake and you've got a map and a compass and off you go One missed opportunity, I think, is that the map always shows your location. So you can't ever really get lost in this game. It's almost a case of what's the point of having this immersive map that you have to bring up, like in the game world, rather than just having like an overlay map. Because, you know, it's always showing you where you are. So you can never really get lost. I'm kind of surprised there isn't an option in the game to turn off you know, the map marker. I thought that disable HUD might do it, but even with the HUD disabled, it actually still shows your location on the map. So you never really have to use the compass. You can always just like kind of walk and see which way you're going. There's no pointer on the dot, is there? There's no pointer on the dot, but it's pretty obvious because you get a little trail behind the dot to show where you just came from. So it's, it's really obvious where you're walking from and to. That trail must have been added because someone still got lost with the dot. Then it just goes to show they wouldn't survive in the wilderness. I looked for the same option as you. I guess this comes under the walking simulator no failure case. Since if the objective of the game is to tell a story and you as the player get completely lost in the park and don't understand how to use a map and compass and landmarks to find out where you are, then they can't really tell you the story. They should still have made it an option, though. Anyway, anyway, very minor quibble. Can we talk about the walkie-talkie? I think we should definitely talk about the walkie-talkie, considering it's the main thing in the game. I quite like the walkie-talkie. That's good, because that's the main thing in the game. <laughs> you know, the the whole mechanic of it, you have to hold the button, select the option, let go of the button to engage with the option, to return the call. I thought it was really clever. And I think it's actually even cleverer than is apparent on your first playthrough. So, the dialogue between you and Delilah, there are a lot of factors that go into the dialogue options you get. So obviously some of them are driven by your choices in the choose your own adventure section. But also, some of them are kind of driven by the idea of like inception. So this is something that was only apparent to me on my second playthrough, and I actually highlight it in the developer commentary as well. So a really great example is when you first encounter the mystery guy on your walk back from the lake. So when you see him and you call Delilah, by default, you will just say, oh, there's some guy. You know, I can see some guy. And then she does this whole, like, tension-deflating thing of, like, Henry, there's something I should have told you about this place. It's outside. People just come and go as they please. It's madness. 
The really cool thing is that if when you encountered the teens at the lake, they called you a creep, then when you see the mystery guy, you actually refer to him as the creepy guy. I thought this was really clever because this is actually what people do in real life. You know, you'll be having a conversation with someone and they may use some terms and later on you will subconsciously be using those terms. I don't know if the sort of thing that you've realised that you do. It's become much more obvious to me after doing this podcast because obviously we have a recorded conversation and then I have to listen over to it when editing it and it becomes really apparent that you said something and then I then mirrored that back later on. So they actually do that in this game and it definitely adds to the feeling of immersion, making the conversations you have with Delilah feel more natural. Is that in the story writing or is that, or are you saying that they take on what you chose in the, the lines you feed later? So conversations you have with Delilah or Delilah has back with you, but also even conversations that you didn't have with Delilah, just things that you encounter in the world will actually colour the nature of your responses to Delilah. They put a lot of thought into it. The dialogue never feels off or bad or weird. It flows naturally. At no point is it does it break the immersion because of a misplaced word or line. There's actually a lot of attention to detail in this game. I don't know if you noticed, but every day, Henry actually... Well, maybe not every day, but for the first few days at least, and then much more sporadically later on, Henry actually writes a diary entry on the typewriter, and you can actually read his diary entry. And then there are lots of times when you get a choice, and that choice actually, well, again, colours all of the subsequent dialogue and also affects the name of things on the map. So I didn't actually encounter this on my first playthrough through the game, but that very first shale slide you come across, you can actually name it on the subsequent playthroughs with the help of the developer commentary. They made it apparent to me that I could have a conversation with Delilah about the shell slide itself. And she'll say, oh, it's not on the map. You should give it a name. And you can name it things like Widow Slide or like The Steep Slide. But <laughs> the best choice is clearly Shitty Boss is Going to Get Me Killed Hill. Actually, I, I did name it. Oh, you did name it? I, I took every opportunity to talk to Delilah. I know that you could... Ignore her or not talk to her. But I took every opportunity to talk to her, actually. Well, I, I took every opportunity that I noticed. But I think there were certain times when I just happened to not look at an item that I could have a conversation about. And some of them you can only do for a short window. So for this shell slide, you have to have the conversation before you go down the slide. And I just happened to not have that conversation before I went down the slide the first time I went through the game. So what did you call it? The last one. You've also called it Shitty Boss. Is gonna, it's definitely the best name. That seemed like the re relationship I was building with Delilah. Well, the best bit is that when you fall down the hill because your rope breaks, it, in my first playthrough, you know, you call Delilah and she's like, what happened? She's like, oh, I fell down the hill. But in the playthrough where I called it Shitty Boss is going to get me killed hill, I give her a call and she says, what happened? I'm like, oh, my shitty boss almost got me killed. That was just perfect.
Sorry, one more day, one thing, one more day, one thing. Did you try throwing the fireworks on the fire? No. Did you? In my second playthrough, I did. Because <laughs> I was like, actually, they plan for so many eventualities. What happens if I actually just try and start a fire? It, it doesn't start a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what? <laughs> no, but, but they did plan for it. So Henry then goes, oh, Good move, Henry. Get fired on your first day. <laughs> it's like, what are you going to say to people? Oh, I threw some fireworks in a fire and burned down half the forest. <laughs> Duh. I have one quote from day one. I thought this was hilarious. I don't know why. It just, it seems so unexpected. This is when you come across the teens campsite and they have, what, Dangerous Hunks magazine. Yes. I don't get why the hunks have to be so dangerous. Girls should want nice hunks. I enjoyed a lot of the dialogue, but this line I found really on point. It just really, yeah, it just resonated with, with me so much. Do you see too many dangerous hunk magazines around and you're just always thinking to yourself, why can't we have nice hunks? But I feel like that's a very Henry thing to say as well. <laughs> yes. Any particular parts about the day two hike you want to talk about? I need, I have this piece of dialogue, but I don't actually know when on the hike this happens. Yeah, at some point during day two, you are having a conversation with Delilah. And then she says, oh, just one sec. And then she has a conversation with someone else. But you only get to hear Delilah's side of the conversation. And it sounds super sketch. Hey, oh. I don't think so. Why, have you? Okay, good. No, I don't think he has any idea. I'm absolutely sure. Would you? All right, I'll let you know if anything changes in that regard. So from Delilah's side of the conversation, it kind of sounds like she might be talking about you and keeping you in the dark about something. But as it's only day two, you don't really think about it. I didn't worry about it. Well, the game is very much trying to, again, to use the word, incept this feeling of paranoia. I mean, I kind of saw this coming. Like, there's actually a lot of situations that happen where... There's a perfectly rational explanation for it. But if you're a crazy, paranoid person, you'd be like, no, they're out to get me. And I think this conversation with Delilah is potentially very innocuous, but you could interpret it in a very paranoid way. And then there's a similar situation with the fence. You come across this mystery fence and you're like, what's in there? I don't know. Could be anything. But it's kind of made out to you like it's this weird mystery government secret project fence did you comment on this conversation with delilah no oh you didn't i i made henry freak out <laughs> i made henry go what was that about what are you talking about me and she was like 
uh, you weirdo, stop freaking out. Which would be the right response? I guess so. That's how I live my life 24-7. It makes me really naive and stupid. But it's got me this far. <laughs> You're like, la la la. They're, ad- they're adults. If they have a problem, they'll tell me to my face. <laughs> I hope they don't ever tell me. <laughs> I can't handle it. I'm too sensitive. What did you make of the fence at the time? Well, I wasn't quite sure where the game was going to go because I assumed it was all going to have a mundane explanation. But part of me wasn't sure that it wasn't some wacky conspiracy theory game. So I did think there was a non-zero chance that Delilah was some, you know, CIA handler or something. And you were all part of some big psychological experiment. And the fence was where they kept the mind control machine or something. I don't know. Like Stranger Things. Like Stranger Things, yeah. Exactly like Stranger Things. So there was a possibility, I thought, that the plot could go that direction. Though I didn't think it was very likely. It seemed like a much more grounded in reality kind of story. Especially with the, you know, the poignant beginning with your wife and the early onset dementia. It didn't seem likely that they were going to go some totally wacky route. But, you know, it's always possible. I think if you ask Delilah what's behind the fence, she's like, oh, they keep all sorts of things behind there. Like hedgehogs. Loads of hedgehogs. Thousands, even full percentage points of the global hedgehog population. Maybe now is also the time to comment on weird OCD behaviours that I did because I thought there might be an achievement attached to them. When you find the teen's campsite on day one, there are beer cans. And when you pick up a beer can, there's an option to tidy it up. And on day two, there are more beer cans. So again, you can pick them up and tidy them up. This game has some achievements that are public, but it also has some achievements that are secret. And I thought that there might be an achievement tied to tidying up all the litter. So I (laughs) went and laboriously picked up every single beer can and tidied it up. And then the other even crazier thing I did, in some of the caches, there are books. And in the tower, there is a bookshelf that you can put books on. I thought there might be an achievement for getting every book and putting it on your bookshelf. So every time I found a book, I would actually walk back to my tower and put it on the bookshelf. From the cache box. From the cash box. Some of them are in the cash boxes. Some of them are just randomly in the wild. Like, I think book number 10 of that, you know, that numbered book series is just in one of the scout huts later on. So again, I found the book and then I walked all the way back to the Firewatch Tower, put the book on the bookshelf and then walked back again and carried on with the story. This was madness. I don't know why I started doing this, especially as someone who claims to not care about achievements. I just, I just couldn't help it, man. I think I probably added several hours to my playthrough time by doing this. I tidied up the beer cans. Then I had to find out why I was tidying up the beer cans. So I googled it. There's no achievement for the beer cans. There's no achievement for the books either. But that didn't stop you. Well, well, it, I, it did stop you. No, I didn't google it. I didn't google it until like day 76. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Hey, it's, it was immersive. I just wanted to read more. Whoops. Well, you know, 
<laughs> Just goes to show, sometimes I'm a dumbass. You escape the real world so you can be a dumbass. <laughs> what, what is that supposed to mean? Only in games, that's what. <laughs> Only in games, okay. I managed to avoid achievement hunting in real life. Or is that just a way of saying I've achieved nothing? Do you want to talk about Delilah's recollection of the 1988 fires of Yellowstone? I guess it's worth mentioning just for background. This job of being a fire watch, I mean, it was a real job back before they had satellites and AI and image recognition. And the setting for the game, or the backdrop for the game, is that there was a major fire in Yellowstone Park. And as a result of that fire, they got given some extra budget. That Yellowstone fire was a real fire. And you can read about it on Wikipedia, the Yellowstone fire of 1988, when they accidentally burned down half the forest, basically. I feel that's like a very easy way to make a game, a narrative feel more realistic, to ground it, just refer some, to something in history. So do you think this is lazy or do you think this is smart? It's smart. It's smart. Okay. Day three. So at the end of day two, your typewriter got thrown through the window and one of the windows in the tower is smashed. So day three, you wake up and you've got to board it up. I quite like the change of pace for day three. I thought it was quite unexpected when the day just suddenly ends. Because you say, okay, the window's boarded up. What do I do now? And she's like, sit in your tower and look for fires. And you're like, that's it? And she's like, that's it. And you can radio her and go, okay, I'm ready to get on with the job. And she's like, what, really? And then you can say, uh, actually, no, I want to do some hiking first. But you can also just radio back and go, yeah, I'm really ready to start the job. And when you do that, Boom, day ends. And then it's day nine. I really like the change of pace for day three. It really signaled to me that some days you do work. Some days you go for a hike to investigate things. Some days you do nothing and you just sit. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what the life of a fire watch was. Most of the days are really boring. In the developer commentary, they do say that they actually talk to some real fire watchers. And they said... The most difficult thing about the job is that it was just really crushingly boring because you couldn't actually do anything too engaging because you had to pay attention. So you couldn't just like lose yourself in a book or something because you had to be looking around all the time in case there was a fire. And most days were literally just sitting, staring blankly into empty space. The other funny thing was Because I had gone and looked on the support forums to see if there was a way to stop the game minimising when it lost focus, when you're in full screen mode. And because of that, I saw some support topics that were mentioning problems loading a save game after day 76. So I knew there were at least 76 days in the game. And we'd had day one and day two and day three. And I was thinking, how long is this game? I'm going to have to play 76 days of hiking around and telling off teens. But no, time skip, straight away, day 9, then day 15, then day 33. So you actually cover quite a significant amount of time in a very short amount of real time. 
for day 15. Yeah, day 15 is a weird one. We get a call from the radio. You get a call from Delilah saying, Henry, Henry, wake up, pick up the radio. And you get a prompt on the HUD saying, answer Delilah. So you pick up the radio and then another woman's voice comes through the radio and then the prompt changes to answer Jules. And I was like, is Jules really here? Or is this a dream? Or is this a hallucination? Because you've just gone mad from being alone in the wilderness? To me, it was just a dream. I thought at the time it would be the start of something bigger, plot-wise. Yeah, in a way, that's the most unusual thing about it. It just suddenly happens. You have this conversation with Julia. Well, evidently this dream conversation with Julia. And it never happens again. Delilah does mention that you just were talking through her radio. But she didn't want to wake you up because it sounded like you were having a nice conversation. Anything else? Day 33? Day 33. So then on day 33, that's when Delilah kind of opens up to you about her own reasons for being a firewatch. So she said she's been doing the job for like 10 years. And is it 10 years ago she met Javier? I don't know. I, d- I don't know when she met Javier. Yeah, Javier. I'm not quite sure of the exact timing of it. But she mentions that she also had like an awkward breakup. And that's that's why she's a firewatch. And that's the reason most people end up being a firewatch. They're trying to escape from something. Which is exactly what you're doing too. And then there isn't a diary entry for day 64, which I took to mean that you'd actually stopped typing them up every day. Though actually, I think it might just be because this particular day, the little story snippet starts up in the evening. So major story moment, there's a big fire. And it's not close enough to you to be a threat but you've got to keep an eye on it. And you have to name the fire. I called it the Flapjack Fire, which is a reference to some earlier conversation we have with Delilah, where she refers to, like, douchebags as being flapjacks, I think. And you called it the June Fire? Yes. That's Delilah's middle name or something? You wanted to call it... Does that mean you wanted to call it Delilah? And she says, you can't call it Delilah. Yes. Let's call it June, even though it's July, because that's my middle name. So whimsical. It seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the right name to give it. I thought we were building a relationship with Delilah. Yeah, you can have this whole kind of romantic conversation with Delilah at this point, where she's saying, oh, it's a shame we're just on the radio. It'd be nice if we could meet in person, etc., etc., etc. So... Yeah, there is something going on between you and Delilah, potentially. Depending on the conversations you've had. I don't know, man. You're married in the game. Admittedly to someone suffering from dementia. But still. I don't know. I have no idea how these things work. I'm not good with human relationships. (laughs) I am not good with these human things. I've never seen her. It seemed fine to me. 
April don't listen to this. <laughs> we have not mentioned at all other characters in the story that, well, that actually turn out to be quite important. So the bulk of the game is just you talking to Delilah. You've seen some teens at the lake who have actually gone missing. And you've also seen the mystery guy. There are also some other characters that are referred to extensively in notes that you find or just by Delilah in other conversations. So there's two other fire watchers. Dave and Ron. And there's also the previous inhabitants of the Two Forks Tower. Ned and Brian Goodwin. But Brian Goodwin. He's a kid? Is that what you're getting at? Yes. Yeah, he's not even supposed to be there. He should be in school, I guess? Actually, I don't know if he needs to be in school, because they do mention it's the holidays, but he doesn't think his dad knows when term starts again. But still, I don't think they're supposed to be kids hanging around in the Firewatch at the park. I think she mentions that he had a habit of waving to the planes, like the observation planes going by, and they sometimes would report that there seems to be a kid in the park, and she would have to just pass it off as, no, 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 that's just, that's Ned, it's fine, he's the Firewatcher. But Day 76 is when things come to a head, or they really amp up the paranoia. You decide you want to catch some fish, so you go to the lake, and then Delilah asks you to try and find some bear tracks. But instead of finding bear tracks, you instead find a clipboard. And the clipboard actually has a transcript of a whole bunch of your conversations with Delilah. Did you go fishing before you found the clipboard? I don't, can you actually go fishing? You can just, there's an option to put away the fishing rod. I don't think there's an option to actually try and catch a fish. Did you? I picked up the clipboard too quickly. Yeah, I wandered around with the fishing rod. I don't think you can actually use the fishing rod. I think it's literally just a MacGuffin. Okay, I just pictured you about to throw the rod into the water, <laughs> or, you know. You can, you can literally throw the rod into the water, but you can't cast the rod and catch a fish. And then they're both freaking out about how their radios must be tapped. But in the 80s, analogue radio, anyone can listen to your radio conversation. It's just how it worked. You know, if you were tuned into the same frequency, you're going to be able to hear the conversation. You know, this is before digital encryption and like multiband magic. I don't know. I guess they're not scientists. And then immediately after you find the clipboard and you can have a read of the clipboard, you hear this weird noise. You go to investigate the noise and find another radio just lying on the ground. And when you go to pick it up, you just get bashed on the back of the head and just knocked out. And then the radio and the clipboard are gone. And then, you know, you're trying to figure out what's going on because now you're super paranoid. There's been the mysterious fence. There have been the two teens that were being jerks and then disappeared. There was the mystery guy. There was Delilah's strange one-sided conversation that may or may not have been about you. And then now you've just found this transcript of your conversations with her and then just being knocked out. So you decide to go to 
the fenced-in area, which is Wapiti Meadow, because the clipboard actually said Wapiti Station on it. But it's locked and you can't get in. And then you go home. Is that right? Is that right? Is that right? Oh no, maybe not. Maybe you go and find the firemen or something. I don't know. You know what? The specifics are unimportant. (laughs) (laughs) When Mike doesn't know the specifics, they're not important. That's right. You can't see it, but I'm just waving my hand and going, ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Play the game yourself, man. Play the game yourself. Uh, Another thing I did think was interesting is that you actually have taken your wedding ring off at this point. Did you notice? No. So on your desk, back at the Firewatch, is your wedding ring. You're not wearing it anymore. I always put it on. Oh, you always put it on? Always put it on. I was thinking, like, for practical reasons, you're out in the wilderness. You know, maybe you're not wearing it. But from a story point of view, it's kind of important too. He's taken off his wedding ring. I assume that's a big deal. It is, but I I take it off, but I put it back on. That's how I see it. I think the game is presenting a choice to you rather than it. it's revealing a preference. Yeah. I, at this point, did Google significance of wedding ring. Do you get an achievement for putting the wedding ring back on or taking it off? But no, the game is just, it's just a thing. And you can put it on or take it off as you please. Well, actually, you can't take it off. If you put it on, then it's on. Okay, so as you're making, I think you're making your way through the canyon to Wapiti Station. You have a mini breakdown as Henry. Yeah, you do. You're right. There is a bit where he's like, wait a minute. Do I have dementia? Am I going crazy? Am I hallucinating this whole thing? And Delilah comforts him. And I felt like they were coming closer together as two people. I thought, you know, that was, I thought that was going to be my payoff in this game. What? You thought some romance with Delilah? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I'm de- I don't. It's, so, it's so funny. Like we have like completely opposite. I mean, this is probably saying all sorts of things about us as people, but you were like, oh yeah, there's going to be some romance with Delilah. That's these two characters come together. And meanwhile, I was like, oh, this is going to be really awkward because, you know, he's meant to be married. I don't want to get too close to her. You know, keep her at arm's length. This is kind of wrong, surely. It's just super awkward. Let's avoid this whole situation. And then we, we make it to the, the research facility. Yeah. You find a fire axe. It lets you break the lock and it also lets you clear underbrush. So finally, all of the map is open to you. You get to the research facility. It's all really, again, paranoia inducing. You know, you see the comms equipment and you're like, what's this comms equipment? It's for monitoring us. And then you find the tent and it's full of, well, what look like notes about you and Delilah and other people they're observing. And there's this whole thing about, frustrated male with failed attempts to copulate or something. I was like, who writes like this? But whatever. And you find the waveguide or wavefinder or something, I don't know, this tracking device. And then Delilah's like, burn it all down, burn it to the ground. And you're like, uh, let's not be too hasty here. And then you leave. But as you leave, no, it's all on fire. Because <laughs> someone did burn it to the ground. And they also have a recording of Delilah saying, I'm so sick of letting these people do this to us. We should just burn the place down. And they stick that to your door at the tower on a Walkman so you can you can hear it. So now there's incriminating evidence suggesting that you burned down the station. Did you find this? Because I actually didn't. I just found out about it later. That clipboard that has the notes about people with like a frequency tracking number on them. That mentions, you know, the frustrated male, whatever. There is actually a tracking collar you can find that's on a deer 
So it actually makes it clear that no, they are deer that they were tracking. And that makes the comment about frustrated male, et cetera, et cetera, make more sense. Did you find that? I found it after the story ended. Okay. But you would have found it because you picked, you found the music. The music tape. Yeah. Cause that's where it is. Oh, is that where it is? Yeah. I actually didn't find the deer. Oh, okay. But I only found the music tape right at the very end of the game. And actually had to, I didn't get the achievement for it because if you find it that late, you don't get the achievement because you're not allowed to actually take the tape. Surprisingly. I think the game doesn't expect you to go there. The game expects you just to, to leave because everything's on fire. But I was like, it's a game. It's a walking simulator. No failure condition. So I actually loaded an early save game and went back and did it. But when I did it on the early save game, I didn't have the wave detector. So I guess I still didn't find it. What's the other thing that you find? So with the wave detector tracking device, it starts beeping and you go through some undergrowth and find a bag. And this bag has key 452, which is the the key that unlocks the cave, which you've been walking past throughout the game. And you pick up the bag and underneath it, it's this mysterious black device that starts flashing and going, brrr, and alarm goes off. And he's like, oh no, the bag was alarmed. And I was thinking, I'm alarmed. Like, this is actually a jump scare. I was not expecting that. And then you can go into the cave and then the cave, they slam the door behind you and you're trapped in the cave and you have to find another way through. And then you find Brian Goodwin's fort where he's got whatever the Dungeons and Dragons equivalent is and his other comic books. And also the rock climbing hooks, pitons, whatever they're called. And he's hiding them to say, I don't want to go climbing anymore. But if you arrange to find these, please send them back to my dad. I just hid them because I don't want to do any more climbing. Foreshadowing. So at this point, did you have any predictions for how it was all going to come to an end i did i predicted correctly (laughs) actually i i didn't 100 percent predict it correctly but i did predict that the mystery guy you saw and in fact the mystery guy who left the walkman and was recording you was ned goodwin so i was right about that and i just thought he's a madman living in the wilderness and he has paranoia I didn't predict what happened to Brian. I thought maybe Brian had just gone home. Though I probably should have predicted what happened to Brian, given the note. At this point, I was wondering what happened to the girls. Do you find out? Does Delilah tell you? Yeah, Delilah gives you a call and says, oh, those two girls, they found them. They were actually in prison because they went joyriding on a farmer's tractor and they got put in jail for seven days. So you know that the girls are okay. I think around this point. Again, I don't remember the exact sequence of events. So that was weird. I thought because they've left it this late, the girls would be involved in the end. They just want the girls missing to be part of the general atmosphere of paranoia. 
well justified. You know, they want you to think that maybe the girls have been kidnapped or maybe the girls have been murdered. Like, you don't know. And as far as you know, at the beginning of the game, Ned and Brian Goodwin have gone, but you don't know whether they've returned back to civilization or maybe they were both murdered. Like, you don't know. They just disappeared one day. And obviously, what actually happened is that Ned is still around being a paranoid madman in the woods. Well, I suppose it's not paranoid if it's justified. And Brian is obviously, well, as we'll find out in a moment, what happened to Brian. Since you've just found those climbing, what is the correct name for them? Hooks? Pitons? Anchors? Anchors, that's the word, isn't it? The rope anchors. So you've just found those, and you can use those to get back down from Brian's camp and then get back into the cave, and then get to the bottom of the cave. And that's when the whole story comes together. So, at the bottom of the cave, you find Brian Goodwin's body. And it's evident that he was climbing, and equipment failure, he fell, and died. And This is all happening on day 79, which is the last day. So that fire that you saw on day 64 has now grown to the point where it's a threat to your tower and Delilah's tower. And so everyone is being evacuated. But before you go to the evac point, the waveguide is beeping. And you go and follow it and find out the truth. Since someone paints, Henry, look here, and there's a tape stuck to the wall. And when you play it back, it's a message from Ned, basically explaining the whole story to you. Brian died in a climbing accident. Ned has been living out in the wilderness ever since. And the two of you have been causing a lot of trouble for each other. Ned has been trying to create this atmosphere of paranoia to prevent you from investigating him is kind of nuts because he kind of actually made you more likely to try and figure out what was going on and then you can go into his cave where he's been living these past few years and find all of his stuff and i did find this funny since it's kind of like something that actually happened in real life i don't know if you heard about this There was a guy who one day just hiked out into the wilderness and then lived there for 20 years. There's there's a few points in the game where, like Delilah says, you know, you you go and pick up your supplies. And you you took just your supplies, right? You're like, yeah, I took only my supplies. Who do you think I am? But she's obviously saying that because supplies have been going missing. And when you go into Ned's bunker, there's boxes and boxes of supplies taken from the other towers. So... You know, this this is actually very similar to a real life story. This guy walked into the wilderness and then every now and then he would just hike back to civilization, steal a load of stuff from people's houses that he couldn't like make in the wilderness, like propane tanks or, I don't know, granola bars or something. And then he would just hike out into the wilderness again and he just lived there for like 20 years. Ned, I guess, has only been there for what, three? Still quite a long time. Delilah takes the news that Brian died 
very hard. She feels personally responsible, I guess, because she didn't report that Brian was in the park. She can't resolve what to do next. Yeah, she's really unclear on whether she should call it in or just not mention it. I think you can encourage her to call it in, but it makes no difference. You know, you can say what you like to her. She's going to do what she wants to do. It's just like earlier in the game, in fact, with the teens. I mean, maybe this is why they do it. Because she'll say to you, oh, these two teens have gone missing. And they're probably the two you saw at the lake. So you're the last person to have seen them. Do you think I should call it in or should we just not mention it? And then, you know, it's probably going to be nothing. So why, why cause ourselves the trouble? And you can say to her, no, 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 I think you should call it in. Regardless of what you say, you know, whether you tell her to call it in or whether you tell her, yeah, just let it go, she just doesn't call it in. But you find out much later. Yeah, you only find out like 30 days later that she didn't call it in. So again, in this case, you can say, no, you really need to call this in. And she'll be like, mm, yeah, yeah, you're right. I really should. She's not going to call it in. At least that's my reading of the situation. And then the final, final part, you've got to evacuate. So a helicopter comes by Delilah's tower and picks her up. You can try and convince her to stay or you can tell her, yeah, you should go now. I think regardless, she goes. And then you yourself have to hike to her tower. And there's a kind of cable car that has been there since the start of the game. But up until now, the car part of it has been on the far side of the canyon so only now is it on the near side. You can actually go there and try and call it earlier in the game, but you know she won't. You can't do it basically. And there's a funny scene where, you know, she says it's only for emergency use, and you then you're like, oh, but there's a tornado, and then she has this whole funny spiel about a tornado in the middle of the. So when I was evacuating, I picked up the whiskey and Turt Reynolds the tortoise. And then just started hiking for the evac point. And then when I almost got to the evac point, I realised I've left my wedding ring behind. <laughs> I guess this didn't happen to you because you put it on. I actually walked back to the tower and put on my wedding ring. Why? Sentimentality. I, from a role-playing perspective, was thinking, well, not wearing the ring is actually quite practical because I'm in the middle of the wilderness. But now I'm going back to civilization. I didn't really put on the ring. I mean, that's, that's how I played out in my head. And you just put on the ring straight away, did you? Yeah. And so it was just on for the rest of the game, was it? Yeah, it was always on. If there was an option to put it on, I put it on. I just think it was funny that I prioritised whiskey and the tortoise over the ring. <laughs> and then I was like, oh wait, my wedding ring. And then it's the end. So the final scene in the game is you arriving at Delilah's Tower and... You can see all the stuff she's been talking about. There's all her crossword puzzles. There's a drawing of you that she mentions that she's doing earlier in the game. And obviously what the drawing looks like depends on how you described yourself to her. We both look the same. We both, we both picked exactly the same options. We both named the tortoise Turt Reynolds. And we both just said, uh, a white guy wearing shorts. I think that was it. Very dull. Actually, at the very beginning of the game, did you pose like He-Man or did you pose like a Victoria's Secret model? He-Man? Oh, I posed like Victoria, the Victoria's Secret model. Because <laughs> you get to see that drawing too. Right at the very beginning. 
Oh, and, and the other great thing in, in Delilah's Tower is the pork pond sign. So again, earlier in the game, she mentions people keep stealing the sign for pork pond because, you know, it's a great name. And when you actually get to her tower, you realise, wait, she's the one who stole the sign for pork pond. Classy. You have a final conversation with her on her radio, in fact. And I don't know, you can try and suggest that the two of you meet up, but she just shoots it down. And she basically says, you should go back to your wife. And that's it. Whether you consider that a satisfying ending or not, I guess depends on how you've been playing the game up to that point. Because I think that happens regardless, right, of the choices you made. So if you were playing it in a way that you wanted to go back to your wife, then you're in alignment with Delilah, it's all fine. Otherwise, it's kind of like you just get shot down and it's really awkward. How did you find it? I don't know, I was trying, you know, throughout the game, I was trying to figure out what the, the payoff was going to be. And there's no payoff. Well, the payoff is the experience. Yes, the payoff is the experience. There, yes. There's no actual payoff payoff at the end. I thought it was going to be like the, the, the growth of this relationship between you and Delilah. And you just abandoning your demented wife. Don't call her that. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, is that factually correct, what you would say? Yeah, I don't know, I'm just being facetious. Yeah. It's not very nice abandoning your wife. No. Obviously, early onset dementia is actually not very funny at all either. Or maybe me and Delilah nurse Julia back to full health. I think that would also be kind of awkward, you showing up in Melbourne with this new girlfriend that you met in the wilderness. She, I, I just bought her because she had wishes she can grant for us. I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's a genie, honest. Hmm. Sorry, Mike. How did you finish it? No, oh, much the same way. And again, I was also trying to roleplay Henry. So I was like, yeah, is there some relationship with Delilah? I don't know. I guess I should pick the option to try and get them together. And she was just like, brutal thumbs down. You're like, oh no, I'm going somewhere else. You should go back to your wife. I was like, oh, okay. I should just pick that then. I was all right with it. I was right with it. I thought it was an acceptable ending to the game. And then you get in the helicopter. And then you get the end credits. And in the end credits, you actually find a disposable camera about midway through the game. So it's quite a clever thing to encourage you to stay through the whole credit sequence. It shows you the photos that you took on the camera, starting from the most recent and ending with the earliest photos on the roll. So the first few photos on the roll were actually taken by Brian Goodwin. And that's some nice closure to the story as well. I'm headed off to old Shoshone Where the birds and the bees won't know me Man and war won't exist no more And there ain't no gals to keep no score I'm taking off for the world Closing thoughts. This would make a good movie, right? Would it? Well, they're making one. Oh, really? Oh, it's like, oh yeah, then then it would clearly. Uh, I don't know. Would it make a good movie? There's there's so few characters. It's going to be like this weird art house thing of just a guy wandering around. 
Yeah, but, you know, easy to get a budget for that. The film is literally going to be one guy with a GoPro and then a few hours in the recording booth. I'm sure they'll find a way to shoehorn characters with dialogue. They'll, you know, they'll present their... The teens will really be characters. Oh, <laughs> yeah, the teens. Those teens were monsters. <laughs> Can we talk about the notes between Ron and Dave? By all means, let's talk about the notes between Ron and Dave. I'm surprised they weren't in your notes. I didn't have much to say about them. They're just notes. They're just other... It's just like a B story. Actually, it's funny because there is actually an achievement called B story about you getting stung by a bee. But no, this is a literal B... This this is a literal B story. It's just another story that happened. Well, this is like Gone Home, What Remains of Edith Finch. This is a story that happened in the past that you're just discovering. There are some notes that explain this friendship between Ron and Dave. That's it. I thought, yeah, yeah, it's another one of those, that's it. Well, that is it. There's nothing you can do about it. It all happened in the past. What's the value of this, though? What's the value of this? It's just immersion. It's just more world building. It's just a story. I mean, it's a good story, but it was more like those other walking simulators we played, where you're just discovering it, rather than you being embodied in it. Are you happy with that? Or do you feel there's more to discuss? No, it's fine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being so dismissive of it. No, I'm just finding... I just want to hear your views on it. Yeah. What do you think of Delilah? Oh, I don't know about Delilah. There is this. There is a whole conspiracy theory about Delilah. I don't think it's worth us going into it, because we actually haven't done a huge amount of our own personal research, but there are some YouTube videos that basically go into... Just instinctively... Just instinctively. Yeah. I just took the whole thing at face value. I thought she was being honest and that she was also taken in by this whole paranoia conspiracy thing. There are some YouTube videos that make a good case for there being some funny conspiracy and Delilah being in cahoots with Ned and lots of stuff that doesn't really make sense from a practical viewpoint. But, you know, like What Remains of Edith Finch you know, that we played last time, you can just accept it from a story point of view rather than a hard-nosed practical point of view. You know, if you're if you're looking at this in a very reductionist practical way, you're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Why should you leave the walkie-talkie here rather than there? You know, she's just walked past your tower to leave it in, you know, Cottonwood Valley or whatever. But, uh, it's fine. You know, from a gameplay story point of view, it makes sense. So. Final thoughts? Well, I think to wrap this up, we did actually get a listener email from Sam Bates. Thanks very much for writing it in. Hi, Sam. So Sam says, Hi, both. I've been listening for a while, but never written in so far. I finished playing through Edith Finch as you were featuring it and then listened to your show. I enjoyed it a lot. I hadn't played the game before, and it really is one of the best experiences I can remember playing. The problem with comparing walking simulators to anything else is that they stand apart from normal games in my experience quotes emphasized there's less action but the way they handle story is incredible i suppose they're more like interactive books anyway i liked it and i like firewatch too i hope you both enjoyed that as well other thing both of these games gave me a sense of unease during most of the playthrough how much of that is because of the atmosphere that they create and how much is due to expectations from previous gaming experiences thanks for the work you put in i enjoy your podcast a lot I have no idea how many regular downloads you get, but you definitely deserve more. Yeah, I think we deserve more too. We'd certainly like more. 
Anyway, to the question, how much of this sense of unease is due to the atmosphere these games create and how much is due to other gaming experiences? Because did you feel a sense of unease in this game? Not as much. Because it was quite sunny. Because it's quite sunny. I think that now, having played more walking simulators, I have finally internalised that there is no threat. The first few I played, and I'm kind of including the witness in the walking simulator category because, you know, they're games that have no game over failure condition. You know, you can move forward. There might be things blocking you from moving forward, but there's nothing that's really going to take you back. And so, yeah, I've just learned there's nothing to fear. The first few I played, I was just really expecting jump scares. Because I guess that's the only thing I could think of that would be threatening, but not derail the story. And I think, yes, that came as much from my previous gaming experiences as from the atmosphere that they are creating. And they generally are very good at creating that kind of feel. But as I have now played quite a few walking simulators, it's now going the other way. My experience with walking simulators tells me that everything is fine. Any thoughts? I shared the same fear as you do for some reason, but I thought it was more to do with atmosphere. The sense of atmosphere that The Witness creates or Edith Finch creates is it's meant to be slightly off. I had no problems with Firewatch. It was like a nice hike through a national park. But you get clubbed over the back of the head. <laughs> I totally wasn't expecting that. Whereas with the other games, I was expecting that. <laughs> So when you found the bag and it was alarmed, I wasn't so alarmed by it. I mean, I did find moment to moment some bits surprising in a jump scare way, but I just, I don't know, I had no existential dread about them the same way I do in, you know, in other games you're like, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to have to load my quick save. But I know that whatever happens, I'm not going to be set back and have to reload and redo a section. The game moves forward, and it only moves forward. What I do think would be interesting is if we played a horror game. Because I think horror games are somewhere in between. Often in a horror game, like a walking simulator, you're being told a story and you're trying to uncover a story. But you can die in a horror game. You can die and have to reload your save game. So I'm thinking of... Things like Alien Isolation or Soma or the Amnesia games. All games I don't want to play. Yeah, I think you're really... <laughs> I can be convinced for the sake of the... For the sake of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> I've actually bought Amnesia because I wanted to play it. They're freebies. They're free all the time. Well, I bought it before they were all free. I shouldn't tell you. I, I shouldn't. <laughs> I should shut my face. Shut my <laughs> mouth. I should stop telling you that I have amnesia. Well, I never actually played it because when it came time to actually fire it up, I was like, actually, I don't want to play this game. <laughs> yeah, I also don't particularly like the idea of playing a horror game. Because the thing about a horror game as well is you have all the downsides of, you know, a more traditional game. You can lose, you can die, but you have very little actual agency. You can't fight back. You can only die. 
Okay, so shall we wrap it up there? Yep. So what's the next book club game, Sir Mike? So the next book club game is My Choice. It's a very short game, about 90 minutes, and it is, funnily enough, called Minute. Spelt M-I-N-I-T. So this is on Mac and PC, PS4, Xbox One. Not on Switch? It is coming to Switch, but not out on Switch yet. So it's an adventure game. Because we played so many walking simulators recently, I thought we should do something quite different. So instead of being very story heavy, it's much more mechanic heavy. And it's one mechanic is that you only live for a minute. So you have to get everything you can done in that minute and then you die and then you respawn and you have to go again. And that's all I have to say about it. So we'll only do one episode on minute because it's so short. So finish minute by the next book club episode. We were Lost Levels Club. We still are Lost Levels Club. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please, please, please. You can find us on email. Mike.and.ting at lostlevels.club. On Twitter. At Lost Levels Club. On Twitch. And YouTube as Lost Levels Club. And Reddit. Slash r slash Lost Levels Club. What are you grateful for, Sir Michael? I'm grateful that I can eat food today. You're really getting good at this. You're good at you're getting good at this. What pithy <laughs> things to be grateful for? Don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, not, well said. Am I not taking this seriously enough? I don't care. I'll take all the victories I can get. So Michael says bye. Bye bye. <laughs>